Simple Beep, Episode 42, Douglas Adams and the Mac. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this is our 42nd episode, which is a number of some great significance <laughs> that we will get to in a little bit. And many of you nerds probably are thinking exactly the same thing that we were thinking when we chose the topic for this show. But before we do that, we have a little bit of follow-up, and this is old follow-up going way, way back uh, to episode 19. On episode 19, we had Erin McKean of Wordnik on the show, and we talked about some of the things that she did with the Mac in the early parts of her career, including making hypercard stacks for various things in school and for other projects. And uh, I follow her on Twitter, and she posted a a photo of a bin of old computer stuff. And sitting on top I was something that I recognized immediately, which was a copy of the iOmega Zip Disk Driver CD, <laughs> which was something that I recall having to use all the time because SCSI is stupid and would forget how to use, actually use your zip drive. And you would have to insert the CD and then yes, yes, remember over here and then restart your Mac and the whole bit. And then she posted a second picture of, I guess she went through the box and was trying to figure out if there was anything salvageable in there. And uh, she pulled out a, a floppy disk and on it, it just has her name and it says HyperCard. <laughs> so there are some of those old HyperCard stacks uh, found, perhaps. And of course, we also talked about HyperCard itself in episode 35. And that's probably a good segue into our main topic for today, because uh, the person that we're going to talk about today was a big fan of HyperCard, and I think we actually mentioned him in that episode. And it is Douglas Adams. Beloved author. Certainly, that's how I came to know Douglas Adams as the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and uh, what the, the so-called trilogy that had five entries. Yes, it got successively uh, less accurately named the more books that he wrote. It also got more depressing the more books that he wrote. As Ed alluded to, this is our 42nd episode, and that number has very special meaning in these books because 42 is, of course, the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And Douglas Adams was not just any author. He was also a, a fan of technology in general and specifically a fan of the Apple Macintosh. And of course, in the, uh, in the books themselves, the answer to the question is delivered by a computer, Deep Thought who has been thinking about this question for a very, very, very long time, and then comes up with the answer, and everybody is quite puzzled that 42 is the answer to the question. And they said, well, what was the question anyway? And they said, and Deep Thought says, you will need a much more powerful computer to figure that out. And that story arc plays out over, I think, three or four books. Yes. Uh, Douglas Adams is unfortunately no longer with us. He was born in 1952 and passed away in 2001. And uh, some of the stuff that we'll talk about maybe towards the end of this episode, uh, it's a real shame that he is uh, no longer with us to see some of the things that have happened in the world of technology in general and some of the products and services that Apple has uh, released in the time since his passing. Yeah. So as you said, he was a fan of technology. And I think that was evident even in some of his sillier writings, you know, because uh, Hitchhiker's Guide is satire and science fiction and comedy all in one and there's lots of otherworldly ridiculous technology in those books like there's the uh the improbability drive which is how you get from you know one end of the galaxy to the other very quickly and it, the more ridiculous things get the less probable things get the faster you go and at one point they kind of like overrun it and uh is, isn't that where they encounter the whale that's falling forever um, I mean, there are just totally bizarre things in these books, but they, they're they supposed to somehow tie back to some some concept of technology. <laughs> and of course, there's uh, Marvin, the paranoid android. Yep, yep. Um, which is, uh, you know, quite the commentary on where AI could go. You know, if you can become artificially intelligent, perhaps you can also become artificially depressed <laughs> um, because that might go along just with being intelligent. Um, so he was definitely into looking at what technology was in the world and taking it to its ridiculous conclusions for fun. Um, but he was also really seriously thinking about technology and seriously using technology. And uh, one thing that he came up with, uh, this was published in a book called The Salmon of Doubt, which I have never read, 
uh, it was a collection of his work that w- it was work in progress when he died, and he died suddenly of a heart attack uh, quite young. Uh, he was just 49 years old. And so he had a number of projects uh, going on, and he always had lots of projects going on because he was notorious for starting projects and not finishing them. Uh, there's a line, I think it's also in, in Hitchhiker's Guide, that says, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they fly by. Yes, yeah. Um, we're living up to that this episode because uh, <laughs> we're a week late. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he always had lots of lots of projects going on. Salmon of Doubt was one of them, and it was published after his death, edited together. It wasn't full stories, but uh, lots of collected works. And one thing that was in there is that he said, I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reactions to technologies. One, anything that is in the world when you were born is normal and ordinary and just a natural part of the way the world works. Two, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. So that's exciting. And then number three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Uh, so we've got about four years left uh, <laughs> yeah. before before we become old and curmudgeonly and hate all new technology. <laughs> yeah. Good thing we have a show about old technology. And like with a lot of things that we'll discuss in this episode, um, there is there's a lighthearted tone to these rules, but it there's a very serious grain of truth to them as well. Like the the like the running narrative around Snapchat kind of fits I think all three of these rules, like the people who are over 35 is just like, what is Snapchat? I'm not even going to try and figure it out. The like the millennials between 15 and 35 are are thriving on it. Uh, they're, you know, like we will use face swap and we'll put fun filters and stickers. Uh, and like the young kids are like, this is boring. This is ordinary. Of course, the world exists where we're sending ephemeral pictures that have been uh, like messed with to our friends. Like that is how we communicate. Uh, I think there's a serious grain of truth, and not just Snapchat, of course. No, that's just that's just an example that proves the rule, though. <laughs> uh, there's some other uh, quotes from Douglas Adams about technology in general. There's <laughs> there are a couple good quotes from this strangely titled article called uh, "Mankind as Sickly as a Parrot," a profile of Adams that was in the Independent. Uh, first, I felt we should address why is it called "Mankind as Sickly as a Parrot." And Adams talks about how there's a lecture he likes to give about the Kakapo, a giant flightless New Zealand parrot, which had, uh, this is from the article, which had no natural predators. So it was, it grew fat. Uh, when European colonists arrived, they started eating them and then uh, dramatically reduced the population, which was then further reduced by the introduced rats and cats that were brought on ships. And, and at the time where he was talking, he said, there are only 43 left. A characteristic that distinguishes human beings from other animals like this parrot is uh, our ability to do a lot of modeling and software before we try stuff out in hardware. Or in other words, we we like to adapt our environment, the environment we find around us to suit us rather than waiting for ourselves to adapt to the environment, which uh, is not just commentary on technology, although it certainly is. But, you know, you think about climate change and everything. Very, very prescient words. Um, But some other things he says in this article, this profile on the Independent, is he admits that he has a a well-deserved reputation for being something of a gadget freak. He says, I am rarely happier than when spending an entire day programming my computer to perform automatically a task that it would otherwise take me a good 10 seconds to do by hand. I've I've scratched that itch. I think, (laughs) you know, I think a lot of Mac power user types who get into automation with any of the utilities that we we tend to use for that, like text expander and Hazel and keyboard maestro. Uh, it's it's fairly easy to go down the rabbit hole. And uh, whenever I see something like this, I immediately think of a XKCD comic from a couple years ago that's called "Is It Worth the Time?" And it's just a chart of uh, how long the action takes and how frequently you do it, <laughs> and whether the time that you put into it is actually going to save time in the long run. And of course, there are criticisms of this sort of, you know, reductive analysis of this, where it's just time equals time. I mean, if you're actually learning how to do the programming and becoming a better programmer, you know, how do you put the the number to that? You know, if, you, if you've actually increased your programming skills, that's, that's a useful uh, way to spend your time, even if you don't get like a tangible time savings out of it. Um, but for the 10 second thing, let's see. Um, <laughs> 
how, how long did he say he spent on it? Uh, an entire day. Uh, okay, so this has uh, this has twelve hours and five seconds. Then you need to have the computer do the thing five times a day. So I hope it was something that he was doing quite frequently. Well, it, that that's a nice tie into the next quote we pulled out of this article, where he says computers, of course, have become the new displacement activity for writers. You know, he's a writer. He he's. Uh, certainly qualified to say this. And he says, it used to be, if you had something to write, you'd get new notebooks, you sharpen your pencils, you clean the fridge, you do all that. But nowadays, instead, you spend all day reconfiguring your operating system. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, like, I'm sure it's it's not just a matter of saving time, but it's, it's also a matter of killing time to him. Yeah, but the, the, the last bit of that quote that you didn't read, Brian, was as a result of that, you begin to know a little bit about the buggers, which is just, you know, yes, you know, you're you're reconfiguring, you're, you're tinkering, you're reconfiguring your operating system, uh, which is something you could do on the classic Mac. Maybe not the way that you're spending your time uh, on modern Mac. Uh, but the more that you do that, the more that you learn and the more skills that you obtain. And it, it, at least a little bit of that procrastination transfers. So these are some of his comments on technology in general. And you may be asking at this point, if you don't know a lot about Douglas Adams and weren't a fan outside of just maybe reading the Hitchhiker's Guide books or seeing the Hitchhiker's Guide movie um, or the radio dramas, I suppose, are also part of that part of that canon. You're saying, okay, what on earth does this have to do with the Mac in particular? And the fact of the matter is that he was not just a you know big technologist and futurist and author, but he was a huge, huge, huge Mac user. And he came to the Mac at the very beginning, basically looking for something to be the tool that helped him get his writing done. And there's a there's a story, and I don't know whether this is apocryphal or completely true. The chances are it's somewhere in between. But the story goes that he was the first person to buy a Mac in Europe. And that there were a very few number of stores in Europe that got the original Macintosh on launch day in January of 1984. And that there was exactly one such shop in London. And the story is typically told by Stephen Fry, another person who's well known in the geek community, pop culture community, but also in the Apple community. And he tells the story of saying he he was super enthused about, about the Mac and he went to the one shop where they were going to be selling them in London, and he was second in line. And the person who was first in line ahead of him, he actually knew because it was Douglas Adams, and they were friends. And of course, that original Mac model wasn't the only model of Mac that Douglas Adams owned over his career. There's a great page on lowendmac.com, which is a favorite resource of us here at Simple Beep, uh, that goes over a lot of the models, Mac models that Douglas Adams was known to own. Um, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, there's also a cool, a couple actually, uh, pages online that uh, have photos and stories about some of the exact models, the exact machines that he owned. So there's a link to an SE30 um, at computinghistory.org, uh, .uk, I should say, that has some photos of Douglas Adams SE30. Oh my God, look at that keyboard. I know, I know. <laughs> Oh, I just blew up the photo. I'm, I'm scarred. <laughs> it's really, really dirty. Yeah. Uh, but there's also an incredible story accompanied by photos of a Mac 2FX that turns out was also owned by Douglas Adams. Oh, this is this is just a mind blowing story. And now recall also that this is a Macintosh 2FX, and the 2FX is famously one of, if not the most expensive Mac ever. Uh, the 2FX launched in 1990 at a retail price of 9999 US dollars. And that was in 1990. And uh, adjusting for inflation, that's about $18,800 today. You can buy like three maxed out Mac Pros for that. <laughs> um, so this was an extremely, extremely high-end computer. Uh, but Douglas Adams was successful and he loved the Mac. Um, and so... I guess he went out and bought a 2FX and it was in his home and he used it heavily, just like the pictures of that SE30. Um, there, there's some details in this, in this story that like um, the 2FX was a, uh, it was a desktop form factor that you would ordinarily sit 
horizontally on the desk and wasn't really designed to go vertical as sort of a tower configuration. So apparently he used blue tack, which is like the, the blue putty, like you would put posters up in a dorm room or something. Um, he just stuck that to the bottom of the case so that he, he could, it would be like stable to stand on its side, which is just bonkers. You know, you've bought a $10,000 piece of equipment and oh, I'll just blue tack it. <laughs> um, you know, obviously we don't know Douglas Adams. Um, we only know him through his works and his writings and these stories about him, but you can get a real picture of the kind of person that he was uh, through all of that. And so a collector of Max, Phil Beasley, found a 2FX basically like at a garage sale or something, um, or it was being sold online perhaps. Oh yeah, on eBay. Oh, eBay, of course. Where else would you buy old Mac hardware? <laughs> so he, he gets this 2FX on eBay. Uh, just, you know, on the cheap. And it comes and it's beat up and it's got the blue tack on the bottom. He, like, washed it out in his bathtub, like, to just the case, to, like, get that off. And then he boots it up and he starts seeing uh, the name of Douglas Adams go by. And he's like, ah, well, you know, Douglas Adams is famous. And apparently uh, in the mid-90s or early 90s, there were a bunch of cracked and pirated copies of software that were going around. They're like, oh, I need to like register this to a fake person. Oh, haha, Douglas Adams, I love Hitchhiker's Guide. And so he saw that and he didn't think anything of it. And then he opened up uh, a second app and it had, uh, he opened up MacWrite Pro and it was registered to Douglas Adams Serious Productions Limited. And then he realized. <laughs> That that was not just like the fake wares name, but that was actually the name of one of the companies that Douglas Adams had for you know, his various creative works. And he realized that he had made a huge mistake because the first thing he did with the machine was he went and he found like a folder full of documents. And he's like, oh, well, I don't want to go through someone's personal documents. So he had deleted them. Ah! <laughs> oh, no. He goes, oh, no, I've just deleted, you know, the, the you know, I've deleted all of the unfinished works of Douglas Adams um, years after his death. And so he, he went through some, some complex uh, machinations that you could probably do with a classic Mac. He, uh, he shut it down. He popped, a, he popped a network card in it, hooked it up to another machine, ran Norton Utilities to do file undelete. Uh, remember last time we talked about HFS and, you know, the fact that, you know, those files are still around in there and you might be able to recover them if you haven't actually written anything new to the disk. And then, uh, he recovered all the files and it turned out that it was, I think it was primarily Adams's wife who used the computer. So it was like 99% her stuff. And then there were like two or three files that he had written. And then the the final, the, the denouement to the story, which is just a great piece of irony, is that um, one of the other things that he wasn't paying attention to in those, you know, little splash screens that opened up when he was opening the apps uh, was that there was something that he just clicked through very quickly. And it turned out that one of the apps had been infected by a virus, Mac malware, in the 90s. And it basically just, it, it hosed everything else on the system. Um, but he was able to recover the, the handful of files and confirmed that they were, in fact, from Douglas Adams and shared them around with his family and has otherwise kept them private, which I think is the appropriate thing to do to, to respect his privacy that way. But, but what a way to figure out that an old computer that you bought for nothing on eBay came from a famous author and contained some of their work and fingerprints and crumbs. <laughs> Every once in a while, I think a story like this happens where it's like you're at a garage sale or you're you're somewhere and just getting like an old piece of art or some old piece of culture and you know, no one thinks anything of it because, of course, it's at a garage sale. And then it turns out to later be uh, uh, something of, of great importance, historical value. Uh, this is this is not very helpful because I don't know any pertinent details, but I, I saw an article recently about how like some uh, like props person for a, a major movie was just like out looking for art to decorate a set and bought a, a painting and the, again i don't know any of the details but they bought a painting at like a garage sale put it up on the set and no one knew anything about it until like some art critic is watching the movie he's like oh, that's a bit like a we thought was a forever lost rare 
one-off painting <laughs> by this very famous artist and uh was it and they had still like preserved it and put it in an art department at the studio it's just like it's it's crazy that things like these can still happen like a like a wonka golden ticket that you don't expect yeah and the, the beautiful thing in in the digital age is that if you catch it you know like with these files you know they are now preserved and they can be copied unlike unlike the painting which you know there's still only one of and you have to you have to protect it with your life Speaking of digital stuff, let's move on from uh, Douglas Adams' Mac hardware to some Mac software that he was involved in. And the the main thing that he was involved in the creation of is a game called Starship Titanic. This was released in 1998, and uh, of course for the Mac as well as Windows. And uh, it was it was an, an adventure game that uh, kind of it seems to me like I never played it, but uh, going through the articles and some screenshots uh, that are posted online about it. And the somewhat still existent official website. Yeah. It strikes me as kind of like a cross between something like Myst and something like the King's Quest Space Quest type games. And the the general plot is that uh, there is a there's a starship, Starship Titanic, that has crash landed on Earth on its maiden voyage, not unlike the, uh, what is it, RMS Titanic. And... Uh, so you you play the part of uh, someone who finds the ship and uh, you're on the ship now, the, the crash ship, and you solve puzzles to help kind of rebuild the ship, rebuild the the computer and the operating system running the ship, and uh, and lots of hijinks ensue. Yeah, the uh, the full-size screenshots are no longer on the website. Um, if it says, here are thumbnails, and click on them to see the full-size ones, and you get 404s, despite the fact that the entire rest of the website is still being live served don't know what happened there um but just sort of zooming in and squinting at these they look very much you had mentioned mist i i would say that they look very much like riven era graphics and uh that totally makes sense i think given given the time that's right around the same year that riven came out and so uh and a first person adventure game very much in the same vein one of the other interesting things about this getting back to Adam's idea of what technology should be doing for us in the future is that uh, one of the significant parts of the game is uh, that there is a conversation engine called Spooky Talk, <laughs> which is what you use to interact with all of the various robots who staff and run the starship. And so I guess this was done, like you said, kind of King's Quest-like, one of those visual, but also with a, with a text command line. Um, so, and, and also like hypercard a little bit, you know, visual, but with that, that optional message box command line. And so you would, you would say you, you would type your part of the conversation into, into the game. And then the robots would respond with actual spoken audio messages back. I will probably look for a copy of this on like the Macintosh garden or something, because this sounds really fascinating, especially considering it's in, you know, like the late nineties that there's got to be a little bit of language processing in this game to to at least put up the appearance of a natural conversation between you the player who could say anything and the the AI essentially of the game uh which has a limited amount of stuff to say back to you it's basically you know it's it's a chatbot i mean you know think things like eliza you know, typical early chatbots existed at that time and you know they go on they go on keywords and that kind of thing and I imagine it's similar to that, although it, it seems like it was fairly sophisticated. Uh, the the specs for the game boasted that it had 10,000 different phrases, although those were split up among multiple characters, and that the total amount of recorded audio, they they hired a lot of voice acting for this, uh, was over 14 hours of audio. So I'm guessing that means that, again, like like Riven at the time, this probably must have been distributed either on DVD or multiple CDs because otherwise, how are you going to compress down all that audio uh, to anything that sounds decent and and put it on uh, and, and put it on a CD or other media to distribute this game? And uh, it it's not outright said, at least in in the stuff that I've read about this game. But you have to imagine that, like, of course, Douglas Adams had the the initial idea and the the general design of the game. But as a very accomplished writer who had a very distinct voice, um, I'm sure he had a hand in writing a lot, if not all of this dialogue. 
Uh, so it's it's a, a game that uh, really couldn't exist without Douglas Adams in many ways. And I really look forward to playing it if I can. Yeah, and as much as I think of him as an author of novels, he was really a creative person in so many different ways. And yes, he was primarily a writer, but he was a writer of novels. He was a writer of nonfiction. He was a writer of short fiction. Uh, he wrote the radio dramas. And then he saw something like this, you know, basically a, a computer game as also being a form of writing. It's, you know, it's, it's interactive fiction. And so it still needs an author and an authorial voice. And he wanted to give that. And he was able to put together this project and make it a reality. Speaking of some of the other things that he's written, he's also, like I said, he's written nonfiction and including nonfiction specifically about uh, technology and specifically about the Mac. Uh, there's an article that he has that I, I think of as mostly dealing with HyperCard, but also dealing with some of the other technology that, that goes along on, on the Mac. And it's called Frank the Vandal. <laughs> And Frank the Vandal is the character in this who is the the guy who is fixing Douglas Adams' kitchen cabinets. And uh, you can tell from his name for the guy what he thought of the, the type of work that he was doing and the ability that he had to use tools properly and successfully. And uh, this is, that was his segue into talking about technology and the fact that he was really interested in having like just the right just the right toolkit for getting done what he wanted to do. And he didn't want to have to think about the, the details of it. So this really goes into like the modularity and extensibility of software. And like, I kind of have to imagine that Douglas Adams was like over on the sidelines cheering, cheering on open doc, hoping, <laughs> hoping that it would, uh, that it would come through. And like, it's clear that he has like some pretty deep technical knowledge, but he portrays it as being kind of, reluctant technical knowledge. Here he's, here's a direct quote from it. He says, uh, I don't want to know about picked files. I don't want to know about TIFF files. I don't. They give me the willies. <laughs> Which is just a very funny way of thinking about it. But he was talking about the fact that he's writing and he wants to insert a picture and he doesn't want to have to go out to a separate app. He doesn't want to have to worry about whether the file format is compatible or not. He just wants everything to work together and that the closest thing that he had ever seen to that was, in fact, HyperCard. And that despite the fact that you might not want to you know, do serious writing in HyperCard, he often found himself back there because even though it was far from the best word processor, it allowed for all this flexibility that because of the type of creative person that he was, lots of that came to him naturally, where he would be writing and and that would spark ideas that didn't necessarily fit in the linear written word. And he also goes on to talk about, like many of us do in the Mac community, like, how could this work so much better for us? And one of the things that he had going on in the early to mid-90s that was not a particularly common setup was that he had multiple Macs and that he had a home network. And he wanted all of this stuff to just work. You know, Apple, it just works, trademark. <laughs> um, and he, he sets out this just wild, impossible scenario that he really wishes is the way that things worked. And he says, I'll tell you all I want to have to do in order to get my portable to appear on the desktop of my 2X. I just want to carry it into the same room. Bang, there it is. It's on the desktop. And then he, like, how will this technology work? He says... This is infrared talk, or maybe it's microwave talk. Uh, so he's, he's on the right path. He, he's like basically imagining Wi-Fi yeah. in his home and what it could do for him in the early 90s. <laughs> and he has it all figured out, you know, except, you know, which band of the electromagnetic spectrum it's going through. Well, it's not infrared talk because um, heat sources and light mess that up. It's not microwave talk because you cook things. <laughs> But it is, in fact, Wi-Fi, which is, you know, right there in the ordinary radio spectrum. And, you know, it does everything for us now. I mean, this, you know, people who are hardcore podcasters will chastise us. But this conversation is happening over the magic of Wi-Fi. It's true. Uh, because I'm not running a 50-foot Ethernet cable from downstairs up my stairs to my iMac. I'm just not in a rental property. No, thank you. 
so he had this and you know he he said that you know this was what he wanted to happen and he wanted the desktops to just be the same the file should be there and this i was reading this i went wait a minute wait a minute this is the first time i've ever read this or it's been a long time since i've ever read this piece by douglas adams and then i'm going wait a minute we just talked about this like last month Apple announced macOS Sierra and the fact that there's a checkbox where you can sync all of the contents of your desktop from one machine to the other through iCloud. And like, he, you know, we, we talked about how in 1997 at that Q&A at WWDC, Steve Jobs had had that vision. And of course, well, it's Steve Jobs, you know, he's one of the most revolutionary forward thinking people in the technology industry. And but then here on the side is one of the people who's most passionate about the Mac, but is not a computer engineer. He's just a power user and an author who loves this stuff and is thinking ahead in the same ways. And he's come to those same sort of conclusions like, I really want wi wireless sync of all my files. Yeah. Um, by the way, this is published directly on Douglas Adams' own personal website, which is another testament to his familiarity with technology. And it's also still live, this website. And judging by the URL of this article, he published this in July of 1998. So really, maybe he was inspired by Steve Jobs or it was a, a confluence of similar thinking. But it's clear that like this was a vision people were having around that time. There's a lot of choice words here uh, specifically for the mess of cables that he hopes Wi-Fi will eventually save him <laughs> from. He's a man who chose his words well and hilariously. <laughs> So yeah, uh, this article talks about lots of things like the the possibility of, of wireless syncing and also the utility of HyperCard to put uh, different kinds of functions into one place, like kind of imagining OpenDoc and uh, how we talked about ClarisWorks, putting all the functions in, into one program. But uh, again, going back to Douglas Adams using uh, his computer a lot to write, whether it was for his fiction, his nonfiction, something he wanted to post on his website, he did go through a lot of word processors. Obviously, uh, from the Mac2FX story, he had used MacWrite Pro. He mentioned a bunch of word processors in that Frank the Vandal article, an earlier version of MacWrite, uh, PageMaker, Nysis Writer, uh, all like ancient Mac software that is uh, uh, <laughs> well-remembered. And then also in a uh, an article he wrote for Mac user, Way earlier, in September of 1987, he talks about what essentially sounds like almost a desk, a desk accessory class of application called MiniWriter. Uh, one word, mini all lowercase, writer all uppercase. I think it literally was a desk accessory. And so this, this column or whatever this is for a Mac user is reproduced uh, online. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And um, it starts with this hilarious all caps statement that introduces the piece that's I, I assume is an editor's note, uh, which reads, we are not exactly sure what we've got here. Perhaps we asked the wrong question, but we think you're going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it starts with a, a joke, uh, a, kind of like how his, his parrot anecdote uh, leads into his thoughts on technology. There's a, uh, there's a joke that he uses to lead into the fact that uh, basically Douglas Adams hates Microsoft Word 3.0. And that was the good one. That was the one that people loved. <laughs> right. And and a lot of things that he hates about it is is how overly complex it is. Uh, and and right, this is this is an early version of Microsoft Word before it really gets into feature bloat. But he has quotes like there's nothing in life so difficult that a Microsoft manual can't make completely incomprehensible. He talks in this article about uh like just the woes of someone who has to suffer through some kind of 600 page manual to use Microsoft Word. And he contrasts that with MiniWriter, which he calls a desk accessory, which has only about two features, one of which, however, Word hasn't got. And in this case, it's uh, the ability to automatically convert the dumb quotes that just go straight up and down to smart quotes, which frame the quotation. And uh, there's echoes of this because he talks about having to like do his writing in one place that has most of the features, copy and paste it into the other one that has the other features that go right back to his Frank the Vandal article where he's like, it's a mishmash of software that each does its own thing. Why can't it all just work? Why can't it all work together? Uh, so yeah, again, this guide to the Macintosh 
uh, at least this entry that's about <laughs> different word processors, we will link to in the show notes. Man, reading some of these things together in quick succession, it's a shame that he wasn't around, you know, four or five years ago when we started getting like the the influx of of iPad text editors and minimalist writing environments and stuff, because, you know, he talked about, oh, you know, writers love to be distracted and procrastinate. And it used to be you had to go out and go to the store and buy notebooks and pencils. And now you can just tinker with your computer and you can try all of these distraction-free writing environments and then still get distracted anyway. And, you know, he would talk about which ones have the two features that he loves, but he would, you know, he would be a plain text guy probably and you know going from one to the other to the other and uh, i i can just imagine it um how, how this story might have might have continued so we mentioned frank the vandal which was published in 1998 one of the other things that happened in the late 90s was that douglas adams was named an apple master <laughs> which was a title that i was not aware of yeah me neither before before researching this uh, there's there's a Wikipedia article which has a full list of all of the Apple Masters. That's Camel Cakes, by the way. And the the Apple Masters were people that were officially recognized by Apple as contributing to creative endeavors through use of Apple products. And many of these people and the output of their creative work was featured in the Think Different campaign which was going on at the same time. And just glancing at this here, it looks like there was, ooh, I don't know how many, about 75 people who were inducted into this program. A, I mean, a wide, wide range of people. Um, looks like some people, some people that are similar to Douglas Adams, looks like at least a couple of the Pythons are in here. Yeah. Uh, but you also have Sinbad, the stand-up comedian crossover actor. But then again, you have Harrison Ford. And uh, Muhammad Ali. So it really, really spanned quite quite a range. Um, so so I don't know how prestigious this title was, but uh, you know, he, he was at least well enough known in the Mac community um, to be recognized officially by Apple. And and he was outspoken about the Mac. You know, he was he was publishing in Mac user and he was publishing in more uh, more mainstream publications about how he was how he was doing his creative work, and uh, some of the things that he said in the mid '90s uh, were were pretty outspoken, not just for Apple but against its competitors like Microsoft. There was certainly the attitude in the the early to late '90s that you know at least before Bill Gates appeared monolithically at. Uh, at uh, WWDC and kind of saved Apple with the investment. That it was it was an us versus them, Apple versus Microsoft. Uh, people who would say like Windows, like D O Z E, because it was always slow and, and lazy, or Microsoft with a dollar sign because they were greedy. And so uh, Douglas Adams had a few choice words that he published on uh, the the release of Windows ninety five. And so we pulled a couple quotes here. Um, one in particular: Have we even devised a new and better way of using computers? No. All that's happened is that Microsoft has remodeled its operating system so that it's now more like the Macintosh, and, you know, a, an opinion shared by a lot of people. He goes on to say, the idea that Bill Gates has appeared like a knight in shining armor to lead all his customers out of a mire of technological chaos neatly ignores the fact that it was he who, by peddling secondhand, second-rate technology, led them all into it in the first place. Ouch. There's also this uh, this quote on um, refspace.com, like a nice little quote database, where he claims to have uh, written an ad for Apple that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. This is not exactly a Think Different ad, but... <laughs> and uh, the, the tagline is Macintosh. We might not get everything right, but at least we knew the century was going to end. Ah, oh, Y2K. Yeah. Like I said, he was always turning a phrase and not afraid to speak his mind. So I think that uh, covers most of the things that Douglas Adams did with the Mac in particular. Uh, but there's one other really interesting piece of technological work that he did that I was unfamiliar with until we were like, we were like ready to sit down and record this show. <laughs> and, and we realized, oh my goodness, we just happened upon this other piece, which is, it's an hour long film. It was produced for BBC Two in 1990. And we've, we've painted this picture of Douglas Adams as a technologist, futurist, 
really looking at the long view of things. And this documentary is called Hyperland. And you know, we, we got into this whole looking at Douglas Adams' life because we knew of his involvement with HyperCard and, uh, and because of our episode number. And this is really interesting because it's all about that HyperCard, HyperMedia, HyperText stuff. And of course, it was in 1990. So remember that the, the World Wide Web didn't really get going till about 93, 94. And so this is very early days for hypertext and hypermedia. And he was so enthusiastic for this that he wrote and sort of acted in, participated <laughs> in, narrates. Uh, his hand appears quite a lot. <laughs> uh, this documentary slash drama called Hyperland. And it stars him and, believe it or not, Tom Baker, yes, of Doctor Who fame. Uh, and Tom Baker plays uh, basically the role of the computer. And Douglas Adams plays the role of the user. And it is, I mean, just for one, it's an utterly fascinating snapshot of technology at the time. And I think a lot of what I saw in this, you know, especially for the same age as us, I think that this pushes a lot of the same buttons that got me excited about technology when I was in elementary school. Like, these are the things on the cutting edge that you can't just use on your computer, but I promise you it's coming. Like, I mean, I remember one of, one of the places that features heavily in this documentary is the MIT Media Lab, which is, of course, still in existence. But I remember when we were in elementary school, that was like mecca. <laughs> That was where all the exciting stuff was happening. And um, I think we were both on the same trip to Boston mm -hmm. with the computer club in elementary school. And we actually got to go and tour the media lab. And like I said, it was like, it was like visiting Mecca. It was like a religious site <laughs> because that was where the innovation was going to happen. And that was where you could see the things that were not going to really appear for, for years down the road. And so this is a very future-looking documentary. Yeah, we will will address like certain pieces of it uh, in roughly chronological order as they happen. But Ed and I watched this separately at different times, and remarkably, like had a lot of the same notes. And one of them that we both kind of landed on was the the look of it. Like it's it is a, a short film, a short documentary that aired on TV. But the majority of it is kind of playing out as if it were this futuristic piece of software or, or whatever you want to call it that has uh, UI elements on the screen. And we both made the observation like this kind of looks like the, the like edutainment, educational multimedia CD-ROMs that were shipped to schools in the, like the mid to late 90s. Uh, like, you know, the, the, there are omnipresent playback controls for like stop go back to home, fast forward, play, rewind. Right. This is the thing is that you, you look at this and, and you know, it was on the BBC, so it was in the UK. Um, but I would think of the, the similar documentaries that I would see here in the US were on PBS, things like you know, Nova and, and different science and uh, educational programs. And of course, you're going to interweave you know, exciting footage of the things that they're describing with interviews with the experts. And, you know, usually you get, you know, the person's face and then the lower third that gives, you know, like their name and affiliation, that kind of thing. And here, instead, there's just a play, pause, uh, you know, forward, backwards controls on the screen for almost the entirety. You know, anytime that an interview is playing, it's like, you know, it's like you were watching it in, I don't know, like QuickTime Player or VLC or something, and you kept the mouse over the window just the entire time. You're like, oh, I don't care about seeing the overlay of the controls. They're always there. Yeah. Uh, Ed, Ed wrote a note at the bottom of his notes, like, this looks a lot like Apple Media Tool in early flash of the mid-90s. Uh, and also like the, the multimedia CD-ROMs, whatever they're created in. And uh, I put it together with like multimedia CD-ROMs and flash. And I think it was Macromedia Director. Like I, I got like flashbacks of like you would quit the the presentation and you'd get that little like created in Macromedia Director with the M and the diamond. Oh yeah, and there there was something um, 
I don't I don't remember which piece of Douglas Adams' work it was in as we were doing research for this show. You know, and, and a lot of this software, he was kind of, you know, he was very critical. Um, and not that he was trashing it, but he was pointing out all the flaws in lots of software. But there was something where he was talking about Director, which clearly he had a copy of because if there was awesome software to be had, he was going to get his hands on it no matter the price. And he said something about director. He's like, it's wonderful. <laughs> like, say nothing bad here. You know, so this was, this was a favorite area of his. But, um, just to, to go back and, uh, we'll go through some of the scenes in this. And the whole thing is available on YouTube. So we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, uh, directly. You can go and watch the whole 50 minutes yourself. Um, it's clearly a, 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 it's a decent quality VHS rip, I would say. That's, yeah. But we'll we'll go through some of the scenes in order here. And one of the things, I, I mean, we, we saw the link to this and, and we went, geez, like, it's an hour long. Do we really want or need to watch this? Is this, is this something that's, that's useful to us? And I just hit play. And after it does the, this is the BBC Two uh, little introduction. Within the first 30 seconds, there's this opening scene with classical music playing in the background and setting up, setting up the scene and panning over uh, the room that Douglas Adams is in. And like three seconds in, it goes past his Macintosh portable, <laughs> which is an immediately recognizable machine. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, and this, and this first scene eventually gets to uh, a, a TV that like starts off playing the news at Douglas Adams, the, the viewer slash user. And then he's like switching channels and it's, it's a whole collection of TVs that are all kind of. He's playing the prices right for a while, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. The price is right. Um, and it's, and it's just kind of like shouting content at him. And so eventually the TVs, we get to like a, a trash dump, a garbage dump, and there are TVs still playing there, but eventually we get the, like a, a smashed TV. We put an end to this. Yeah, I thought that was a little bit, a uh, little bit 1984, uh, the Apple ad, of course. Yeah, um, and then a, a couple of scenes in, we meet the agent, who is played by Tom Baker in a tuxedo. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this is an agent like the agents in the Matrix, or you know, like a secret agent. But uh, I recognize this language from the 1997 WWDC Q and A with Steve Jobs that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Uh, basically, when they're talking about Siri or or the kind of intelligence within the computer that can do things for you, they also refer to that as an agent. So this must have been common language in the 90s that uh, those kinds of uh, characters and, and intelligences inside the, the computer were agents. Yeah, I think, you know, now 26 years later, I think we've pretty much settled industry-wide on the term assistant. Um you know, Google announced updates to uh, Google Now, and then, gosh, I can't even keep the product name straight, but I think actually one of them is called just the Google Assistant, and that's that's their voice interface. And, you know, you can call other other voice interfaces like Alexa. They're, they're generally thought of as assistants. Um, and perhaps the agent is actually a, a little bit more powerful than just an assistant. So we, we get introduced to Tom, who is the agent for uh, this this documentary and the like imagined world of software within. And there's some fun little bits of uh, like a control panel opens where you can customize your agent, not just in appearance, but in accent. Uh, there's even a thing for manner where he goes from what, what like Kurt to uh, like obsequious. He says, why are you so obsequious? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> How could I have forgotten that? Uh, and that reminded me of the one of the scenes in Interstellar where uh, Matthew McConaughey's character like tells his his robot agent to uh, like dial down his sarcasm or dial up his humor or something like that. Again, twenty five years later, I want this. I want this little slider for Siri. Please, please give 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 me the dad joke slider. I want to turn <laughs> it down to zero. And then uh, before we get into the actual like imagined world and seeing how all these concepts can play out. Tom quits. Oh yeah. There's a bomb and he unexpectedly quits. And it actually puts the phrase unexpectedly quit on on the screen, which is, you know, just one more clue that this was written by Douglas Adams, a seasoned Mac user. There's even a little quip about how like the software update for Tom is coming and it's definitely going to fix all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> then we get into sort of the meat of the documentary, the the more documentary like portions. 
And the conceit here is that it's still all being navigated. Like you are the passive television viewer, you know, that, that bad thing, passive television. Um, you are the passive television viewer, but Douglas Adams is the user in this case. And it's all presented as if he were navigating the multimedia presentation. But at this point, the multimedia presentation changes from his fictional dream world back to more of the real world where you bring in real people talking about real technology that's being developed in various places, uh, including the aforementioned media lab. Um, also at one of the labs, Oh, I forget the name of the lab in San Francisco. Um, and there's even a project that Apple was, a was a co-collaborator on, um, which was called, uh, it was an interactive companion to a movie called Life Story. Or again, maybe they keep calling it, they call it a drama, <laughs> um, which I think is just, you know, British English coming in there. <laughs> but it's a drama about uh, Watson and Crick, the uh, the discoverers of the DNA double helix. Um, <laughs> this was the point at which I, I was unsure if I was dreaming or not, because Crick is played by none other than he of um, of iMac ad fame, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is, in fact, a real thing. I looked it up on IMDb. Um, and it's also a real thing that Apple... So they, they show, we put together this prototype multimedia experience to go along with the, as a companion to Life Story. And uh, they flash very quickly on the screen um, the, like, main splash page of this interactive companion which for the world looks like it's done in oh absolutely yeah (laughs) Uh, because it's all black and white and um i went back and paused on that on that frame and and there's credits and uh you know it's a prototype demo or something and the credits for the people who are behind this include apple themselves lucasfilm and the smithsonian which is an all-star cast yeah, uh, you mentioned Watson and Crick, and I made a note that like, as a as a work of media, this fifty minute long documentary actually does a good job on like providing some information about like works of art and and pieces of culture and history. Uh, so they they use Watson and Crick, the like actual footage from that movie, to talk about how there was a companion piece of software. They talk about Kurt Vonnegut's work and and software that relates to uh, something he wrote. They talk about Beethoven and they look at waveforms of uh, audio recordings. They talk about Picasso. There's a lot of of like real world content in here that is still like being presented in a way that you, the passive viewer, can still learn and and actually like enjoy this as just a little documentary. And I I was immediately thinking of the kinds of multimedia projects that we together actually worked on in school. Yeah. I mean, we did a a multimedia presentation in Apple Media Tool that I think was the closest to something like this. Um and that was in what, 1999 or 2000. It must have been in right around that time um on the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. And we had the same thing where there were interviews and you could jump from one interview to other based on the content of the interviews. Um, And, you know, we were amateurs. (laughs) Um, And it was clear that in 1990, a lot of professional talent and budget went into this to get it to the level that it was at. We were able with, you know, uh, just a G3 tower in 1999 to be able to cobble that together and I was thinking, man, I wish that I had seen this documentary then so that I would have seen what the professionals were doing. Um, to, I mean, I think those projects came out very well in the end. And I, I still have a copy of the MLK project. Uh, that one has survived. But yeah, it was, it's a really fascinating look into, uh, into how to present this stuff in a new and fascinating way. And it's interesting, they finally get down towards the end of it in terms where they start to talk about the terms for what they're doing because they're so new that there's not a common language around it yet. And there's actually a little bit of a, a scene about that. And uh, and I think what they mostly talk about is they, they talk about multimedia, which is such like a bleached throwaway word these days. Oh, it's multimedia. I guess it's not just like ink on a piece of paper. You know, everything is multimedia. Snapchat is multimedia. Yes, by default. 
And then they also talk about things like hypermedia. Um, I'm not sure that they used the word hypertext, but it was no, they did they did talk about hypertext. They in fact they had one of the inventors of hypertext. Um, and you know, it was all these things that were that they were on the cusp of unlocking. And the fact that you could bring these things together and connect them on a single computer system, you know, pre pre-internet, especially for de delivering all of this rich media. There was just absolutely no way. Hypertext was possible over modems at this time um, and was, you know, about to come in the form of, of the web a few years later. But um, they were really struggling to come up with what is the terminology for organizing information in this way. And we've talked a lot about, like, there are lots of different segments. And one of the things that's very consistent is uh, how how do they manage these transitions between maybe talking about uh, the work of uh, Kurt Vonnegut, the example they use there, uh, I'm, I'm stealing these from Ed's notes right now, is that they have uh, like underlined words where if you don't know what a word is as you're reading it, you can tap on it and get the, the dictionary definition just like you can in the Kindle operating system today. Yeah, that was what I immediately thought of. It's like, oh, Oh, that looks almost exactly like the interface on a modern Kindle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so how do they jump from talking about dictionary definitions in uh, something about the written word to uh, like the HyperCard-esque uh, software companion to a film about Watson and Crick? Well, obviously they used Micons. <laughs> yes. Of course. I mean, it's the way of the future. These are so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so what's a, what's a Micon? Well, they actually have a little brief interview with the inventor of Micons who invented them at the MIT Media Lab. And a Micon is a motion icon. And so they're, they're basically just like um, little looping videos that are also buttons. And of course, you could imagine creating such a thing in, in HyperCard um, or, you know, think of famous things created in hypercard like mist there were little quick time movies and maybe that was the thing that you clicked on it had a little little you know little active area around it yeah it's it's almost as if like the the icon for a button which you could do in hypercard was like a four frame animated gif and uh like if you want to go to a new interview with someone else it was usually like four frames of their face moving around or like raising their hand because there's a point where they also add audio to the micons. There were videos. They were not just animated GIFs. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And so th there's a point where the micons start like really trying to get your attention. So it's it's you know like again for like four frames of of a person's like bust and uh, like shoulders up, and they're raising their hands, and then their little sound effects like <clears throat> over here. <clears throat> as the other person continues to talk it's massively annoying yeah and, and like ed said uh there's a nice little uh image of douglas adams hand uh kind of making the the browser cursor uh pointer finger and it kind of floats up over the screen over all the stuff that's happening on the screen and uh you know pantomimes clicking on the mic on to transition to the next interview segment it's clearly before the era of capacitive touch screens because he, he's like putting some force in there We've been talking about uh, Tom, the live action agent. Uh, just to be clear, this is, again, like this is, uh, he's dressed in a tuxedo. It's video footage of him that's overlaid on top of the, the like background footage, the stuff that he's referring to. Towards the end, however, they introduce a fully 3D animated uh, software agent. Oh, dear. This is the one called Mike, right? I think so, yeah. And who uh, oh boy. Well, the good news is that I think this is like the poster frame for this video on YouTube. So you will be as prepared as you can be. I mean, we can try and tell you things like they like explode elements of his face and shrink the like the, the skull and, and reverse it and just try and show all these cool effects from like Tin Toy era Pixar. But clearly, you know, this wasn't the full focus. So they didn't have even the resources of you know like early 90s pixar trying to it make looks slightly better than the uh the opening screen of super mario 64 <laughs> yes where you can like pull and tug on mario's face except a million times creepier and they said they're like oh it's because our computer graphics are so good that we were hitting uncanny valley and people were like worried about it so we had to make it less realistic and like dial up the spoopy lighting <laughs> 
And it's it, it's a very, very disconcerting effect that they have given this this new state-of-the-art computer agent named Mike. I don't know whatever happened to Mike. He was probably consigned to the dustbin of history because he scared the heck out of everybody. Mike, again, comes towards the end. And the final segment is kind of like, what's what's really like the far-off future? What's What's like an even far further off method of delivery of all this content. You know, we've been talking about stuff that's probably computers and maybe touchscreen computers. Uh, clearly Douglas Adams is, is touching the mic ons to trigger segments, but like, where does it go from there? And it's actually a pretty on the nose description of what consumer VR turned out to be in two, 2016. And the hilarious thing though, is that they're like, who can we turn to who has operational VR? Well, it was NASA, and it's got the, like, NASA worm logo, like, branded on it in big letters. And it's this thing, I mean, it's a big rig with a wire coming out the back. But it is, except for the lack of miniaturization, it is essentially like a Gear VR. Yeah. That this guy from NASA is like, we've got the state of the art, we've got two liquid crystal displays in here that will show separate things to your eyes. And he puts it on... And he enters the virtual world, which is extremely low polygon and about five frames a second. But it, it, it is tracking the movement of his head. There's an accelerometer or something like it in this giant rig on his helmet. He's also got like a Nintendo Power Glove type thing that tracks his hand. And he has all these gesture commands to like fly through space using his hand. Um, this is, you know, this is the far out stuff that it was that it was trying to show off. But again, like going back to all these things, so many of these things that, again, were in a documentary released in 1990, like like not the 90s, as we've been using to refer to a lot of these things, the beginning of the decade that got so much right, uh, whether it is something simple like the way you look up a word as you're reading uh, an electronic book to the way that... Uh, consumer vr is going to work which at the time was only available to nasa and the fact that this was all again the entirety of this documentary was written by douglas adams and <laughs> that's why we're talking about it it's not that he was the producer or something like that he was the person who who put this all together and you know he was the person who was exploring these ideas because he was interested in them and had that futurist's vision of what was actually going to be the way, you know, what was actually going to succeed? And he was, he was right. So I think, I think this brings us to our little postscript for the episode, which is, of course, the, the tragic fact that Douglas Adams died in 2001 of a heart attack. And it was, it was very sudden. It was unexpected. And it definitely cut his career short. And it, of course, cut his interaction with, technology short uh but he was in the thick of things all the way up till the very end yes we've mentioned that uh his he had he maintained a website for himself douglasadams.com where he would post you know longer form essentially blog entries but there was also a uh an open forum on his website and so the actual the the last thing he published to his website was a post on a thread in his forums, and it was in a thread about the soon-to-be-released Mac OS X. And uh, it's almost poetic that this was the, the last thing he wrote. Uh, one of the pull quotes from this post is, I think it's brilliant. I've fallen completely in love with it. And the promise of what's to come once people start developing in Cocoa is awesome. That That's so amazing. And, you know, obviously that was 15 years ago, and... Uh... De development in cocoa is a thing of the past now uh rather than a thing of the future but but yeah lots of awesome stuff happened since then um and of course the thing that i think of uh when i think about the end of his life and what he didn't get to see uh especially coming out of apple you know the number one thing is the iphone uh you know it's it's the, it's an ipod and it's a phone but it's an internet communicator and I feel like that's the thing, you know, that's the thing that gets us excited about our phones and their future capability, current and future capabilities today. Um, but the concept of a pocket internet communicator to Douglas Adams would have just, I mean, he, he would have just been like kid in the candy store uh, with the iPhone. And you know, 
the obvious parallel to me is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, you know, it's the name of the book in the series, but it's an artifact. And it's, you know, it's an artifact in the stories, and it's what drives a lot of the story. Um, the fact uh, that there is this thing that has, um, in, in a, again, in a humorous voice, uh, it has information, all the galaxy's information, everything you need to know about everywhere you want to be in the galaxy. And, you know, I haven't reread Hitchhiker's Guide in a long time, but I, I think I reread it in college and that was solidly into the beginning of the Wikipedia era. And I think, you know, he was so interested in hypertext. And uh, gosh, I mean, if you had to say what's the one most interesting hypertext project that humanity has created, yeah. it's Wikipedia. Absolutely. Uh, all it is is it, it's hypertext. It's the world's information. And it's not nearly as funny as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But it's our, you know, it's our little hitchhiker's guide to Earth, and uh, and he would have been fascinated to, to see that develop. And then, uh, you know, for the first couple years of of Wikipedia, it was more or less locked to your desktop or your portable laptop computer. Uh, but once the iPhone came around, it was in your pocket, and and the world's information is in your pocket. And uh, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of amazing to speculate on what he would have been able to do with that. And the fact that if he were he were still around today, uh, you know, all of us members of the Apple community, people who are, uh, you know, waxing poetic and being pundits on on the future of Apple and their products, um, you know, we're we're all heads down on oh, what's going to come in iOS ten? What's the next? What's the iPhone seven going to look like? What's what's going to happen in twenty seventeen? And you know that if he were here, he would be loving his iPhone and iPad and and getting the most out of it, just like he was. You know, squeezing the last drop out of out of those late '80s Macs with desk accessories, rather than using the run of the mill applications. But he would also be thinking of you know what's going to be coming 10, 15 years down the line that uh, us mere mortals uh, have a real hard time wrapping our heads around. And yeah, and it's and it's a shame we're not able to uh, to benefit from his forward thinking wisdom because I bet he would be write about a lot of that too. Yeah. He, he not only had the answers, but he also, he also knew the questions, the right questions to ask. That's a great way to end the episode. I think so. So if, if there's anything that we missed and, you know, like we said, Douglas Adams was prolific and we were able to find a lot of this very interesting stuff, uh, that he wrote fiction, nonfiction, Mac stuff, uh, other technology stuff. But if there's something that we missed, uh, please let us know. Get in touch with us. You can always go to our website, simplebeep.com, and there's a contact form there. And of course, you can also find links to uh, all the things that we talked about in the show notes, which you can get to easily at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also contact us on Twitter. On Twitter, we are at simple underscore beep. And you can find us individually on Twitter. I am at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I promise I will stop tweeting about Pokemon sometime soon. <laughs> as we as we record this, if you're listening to this in the archives, uh Pokemon Go came out last week. <laughs> and we'll just put a put a timestamp right on that. <laughs> and where can we find you, Brian? <laughs> and I am at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And uh so far I think I've only done one Pokemon Go uh tweet, but it got picked up because I did it in the middle of a TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Very good. All right. Thank you, all you hoopy fruits, for listening. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. <laughs>